This week on Double-Edged Sword, cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture, Father John Ricardo talks about Jesus. Who is he? Was Jesus just a great philosopher? Well, let's find out. Father John is a priest and executive director of a nonprofit ministry, Acts 29, which works with pastors and their teams to transform their parish culture and reclaim the church's missionary identity. And now, here's Father John Ricardo. I think it was a quasi-divine appointment, if not a downright divine appointment. Had an interaction today with some folks more or less precisely on the identity of Jesus. It had to do with our school and some confusion as to whether or not Our Lady of Good Counsel is a private school or a Catholic school. And we tried to make abundantly clear that we are a Catholic school, that Jesus is in fact the center of all that we do, and that to be Catholic doesn't merely mean that we're interested in teaching an ethic, like be kind to each other, although that's certainly a good thing to do, huh? But to be Catholic means that we believe that Jesus is in fact the one mediator between God and man, and that he is the fullness of the revelation of God, that he makes known definitively who God is. And the discussion kind of went from there, and there was some confusion as to why that would be so significant. So maybe that'll come up at the end of what we're going to try to do tonight. So I'm, I'm uh, frustrated because I felt like I just had a, an interaction with the culture as a whole. Because the culture as a whole doesn't really seem to grasp the significance of Jesus. And the significance of Jesus is precisely that. It is the big deal. Everything stands and falls with the identity of Jesus. And so tonight, the title of what we're going to look at is Jesus, God or a Bad Man? He has to be one or the other. And we'll work our way through that as we move along. Which just drives a stake into the heart of all these people who, in this false sense that all religions are equal. No, no, no. All people are equal. All people are absolutely equal. From the moment of conception to the woman in hospice to the guy on death row to the woman who lives downtown in Detroit with no home who is living in clothes that are who knows how old. People are equal. Ideas are not. Ideas stand or fall are measured according to whether or not they are true. Some ideas are bad ideas. We have a workshop going on downstairs right now because some people have the idea that it might be at least mildly, if not downright okay, to abuse children. Now, I would certainly respect the person who holds the idea, I would not respect the idea. That's a dangerous idea. Or maybe the better way to say it is, I don't want to look at religions, I want to look at Jesus. That has to be the starting point. That's why we we really begin here. Last week I said that I felt like I was kind of the maitre d' telling you what was on the menu. Tonight we start to eat. And we eat with really the greatest course that there is. The best course on the menu is Jesus. And if Jesus is not in fact who he is then we can all leave. This is a total waste of time. I don't care how good it makes you feel. I don't care how much you enjoy the music. I don't care how much you enjoy the ethic 
that is espoused by Christianity, this is a total waste of time. If he is who he says he is, then that makes all the difference in the world. So we start here because we have to ask the right questions in the right order. For example, I gave you this list of 106, 10 books, whatever, that I think you should read before you die, (laughs) for whatever arrogant claim that is. Books that I really enjoy. If you can imagine that that list is more like a list of 100 plus questions that people have about the Catholic faith, questions that many of us have, that's why we're here. You know, like, what about the church's teaching on contraception? What about the church's teaching on the ordination of women? What about the church's teaching on celibacy? What about the church's teaching on the Eucharist? Whatever it might be, anything. All real questions, all important questions, great questions. But those questions, if you have the list, are something like, you know, question 72, question 103, maybe question 31. My point is, they don't have a context if you don't understand the title of the list. And the title of the list is, God is so passionately in love with us that he sent his only son in the flesh, born of the Blessed Virgin Mary, who suffered, died, and rose from the dead so that you and I could have forgiveness for our sins, be reconciled to the Father, and share in his own abundant life forever. If we don't understand that, none of the rest of this makes any sense. So that's why we start here. In particular, to be a Christian, and this got into some of this discussion that I had with these folks today, is not first and foremost a question of doctrine. It's a question of a person. To be a Christian is to be a disciple of Jesus. I said, I think last week, we are not Marines. No offense to the Marines. We do not follow a code. We love a person. Three persons, actually. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we have to start here because the issue is Jesus. And if we get that wrong, we get everything else wrong. Some of us, when we were in high school, were forced to read Shakespeare. And then hopefully at a certain point in life, you began to read Shakespeare or go to plays because you love Shakespeare, this extraordinary genius. In Romeo and Juliet, Shakespeare has this expression which unfortunately is rarely understood. And the expression is, what's in a name? His point is, everything is in a name. And so as we we look at Jesus, it's worth thinking about that as regards him. In the Old Testament, names mean something. People didn't just, you know, come up with a name because they found a book and liked it. Although that's fine to do for those of you who've done that for naming your children, okay? But naming a child was a little bit more complex than that. It was a little bit more spiritual than that. The name that you gave to a child had something to do with either the family lineage or with some sense from God as to what the mission and the vocation of this child was going to be. Sometimes God gives the name himself. So, for example, Abraham is a name that God gives to Abram. God changes Abram's name to Abraham, which means the father of many, father of many nations. Or we see someone like Peter, whose name is not Peter, his name is Simon. Jesus changes Simon's name to Peter, which is not a name. No one's called Peter at the time of Jesus. You know, my brother is called Peter now. It's a common name. No one's called Peter. Peter means rock. It's like me calling you dump truck. You go, dump truck? What kind of name is dump truck? That's just silly. 
So Jesus does something similar with Simon. He says, your name from now on is going to be Rock. And it's not because Jesus liked the way Rock sounded more than Simon. It's because he had something for Simon to do. He had a mission for him, a task for him. I have friends who work in doctor's offices and whatnot, and they're, they're always fond of kind of reading off the roles of the names that people give to their children, some of which are, they just seem kind of downright cruel, actually. The Lear family, at least, I don't know if this is apocryphal now, but I've always been told that the Lear family, they have one daughter whose name is Shanda. Shanda Lear. Oh, isn't that cute, you know? Sounds nice, you know? I don't know if you hang her for the ceiling or what. There's supposed to be more in a name than just the fact that it sounds in a particular way. Even Native American Indians do that. Running bull underneath oak tree. I mean, someone's named something because of a significant event that had to do with it. It's really just us in the last few hundred years who've kind of arbitrarily come up with names for no reason other than the fact that we like the way they sound, which again is fine. Nothing wrong with that. But Jesus, his name means something. When the angel appears to Matthew in the Gospels and says, Do not be afraid, Joseph, to take Mary as your wife, for she has conceived by the power of the Spirit, and you are to name him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. So Joseph, who says no words that are recorded in the Gospels, the only word we know he said for a fact is Jesus as it was the father's responsibility to name his son at the naming ceremony. So Jesus receives this name. So what does Jesus mean? We just heard that from the angel, huh? Jesus, the Hebrew is Yeshua, which means God saves. That's what his name means. It's not just what his name means, it's who he is. His name is his mission. It's his identity. It reveals who he is. That's what Jesus has come to do. Jesus has come to save. But that's not at all what people today want to reduce Jesus to be. People today are fine with having Jesus as a good man, pretty incredible moral teacher, kind and compassionate, maybe a political revolutionary, a prophet even, all sorts of things. But God, second person of the Trinity, sent to save us from sin? Come on. No less a person than Thomas Jefferson I'm somewhat, um, not amused, perplexed by the people who think that if we could simply go back to the origins of the founding of our country, then we would be in a better place than we are now. There's some truth in that, to be sure, because the founding fathers understood that morality was most important. That, in fact, if you didn't have a moral people, democracy wouldn't work, which is unfortunately proving itself to be true. But Jefferson was no Christian. In one of his writings on... This is actually a letter to a friend of his. He wrote, talking about Jesus, It is not to be understood that I am with him, Jesus, in all his doctrines. I'm a materialist. I believe in those things that I can see. He takes the side of spiritualism. He preaches the efficacy of repentance towards forgiveness of sin. I require a counterpoise of good works to redeem it. It is the innocence of his character, the purity and sublimity of his moral precepts, the eloquences of his inculcations, the beauty of the apologies in which he conveys them that I so much admire. See what he's done? How he's just reduced Jesus? He loves to listen to him when Jesus says things that he likes to hear. Sometimes, indeed, needing indulgence to Eastern hyperbolism. My eulogies, too, 
may be founded on a postulate which all may not be ready to grant. Among the sayings and discourses imputed to him by his biographers, that would be the Gospels, I find many passages of fine imagination, correct morality, and of the most lovely benevolence. So I'm all for those. Love your neighbor, do unto others what you would have them do unto you. And others, again, of so much ignorance, so much absurdity, so much untruth, charlatanism, and imposture, as to pronounce it impossible that such contradictions should have proceeded from the same being. I separate, therefore, he's talking about the Gospels here, what he does. I separate, therefore, the gold from the dross. Restore to him the former and leave the latter to the stupidity of some and roguery of others of his disciples. Of this band of dupes and impostors, Paul was the worst and the first corrupter of the doctrines of Jesus. Some of you might know that there's what's known as the Jefferson Bible. Jefferson took it upon himself to sift the gold from the dross, and he just cut out, edited, all the passages in the Gospels which he found to be beyond belief. And so it ends with Jesus being buried in the tomb. Jefferson is no Christian. But this is just one example of the kind of thoughts that are out there about Jesus. I'm all for all his lovely expressions. Don't give me any of this nonsense about him being divine, having done miracles, having offered up his life on the cross in atonement for our sins, or having risen from the dead. Uh Uh-uh. This mess comes from what Peter Kreeft calls, Peter Kreeft is uh, one of the guys on your book list. He's a wonderful writer at Boston College. He calls the Enlightenment the Endarkenment. I love that expression. The Enlightenment had as as a goal to do a number of things, to bring the empiricism of science into what it thought were things of superstition. So it tried to just go through everything that had to do with religion and just throw out whatever it is that could not be empirically verified. So it wanted to purge dogmas and the hierarchies of the church. Along the way, it happened to replace those dogmas and hierarchies with new dogmas and hierarchies. And so today we live in the product of the Enlightenment age, The primary dogma would be that there is no such thing as truth. And the hierarchy that it would have would would be something like the absolute or supreme importance of science and the scientific method for investigating things, which doesn't work for everything. It's hard to scientifically or empirically verify love. You can't put it in a test tube. You can't even repeat it. So all it's done is switch dogmas and hierarchies. Pope Benedict, in a great book, commenting on just this as using the criteria of the so-called modern worldview and the type of historiography inspired by the Enlightenment, one extracts Jesus from the sources and an opposition to the sources. So what happens now oftentimes, people read the Gospels, you go down to Borders and you read, you know, the real Jesus or the Jesus behind the Gospels or the Jesus before the Gospels or the Jesus who has nothing to do with the Gospels. I mean, whatever. What they've done is they've just kind of a priori pushed the Gospels to the side as being ridiculous and obviously made up because they've got miracles in them. And miracles don't happen. We all know that. So therefore, the early church, or the church community, makes it sound a little bit nicer, came up with this idea about Jesus, which really isn't rooted in the truth. So we have to get past what they wrote to find the truth. And that's what you'll find when you go down to any of the the major booksellers and you pick up a book on Jesus. You'll find the Jesus behind the Gospels. Da Vinci Code nonsense. That's all that was. You know, we can't trust the Gospels. 
So we'll go to documents which are written hundreds of years later, which if you actually read them, you would simply laugh at. You know, you read these uh, Gnostic Gospels that the Da Vinci Code and others claim are, you know, so pro-woman and, you know, among other things, it says in some of the Gnostic Gospels that in order for a woman to enter the kingdom of heaven, she must become a man. So much for pro-woman. There's a real dignity of the feminine nature, huh? These things are out there and they sell. They sell like crazy. So Benedict says, in this process, the following is assumed. Only that can happen in history, which is in principle always possible. So for example, Jesus and the feeding of the 5,000 with a few loaves and a couple of fish. That was a miracle of sharing. That's what happened there. He didn't multiply any loaves of bread for crying out loud. People can't do that. The real wondrous thing is he got everybody who brought their own little picnic baskets to actually share with the other person. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all thought this was so significant that they all recorded it? Give me a break. But that's what they do. And I dare say that some of you have heard homilies that say the same. You won't hear that homily here. I'll just say that much. The normal causal framework is never interrupted so that anything which goes against the causal laws known to us is not historical. Hence, the Jesus of the Gospels cannot be the real Jesus. A new one must be found, from whom everything is taken away that could be understandable only from God's perspective. The structural principle concerning the making of this Jesus admits to excluding the divine in him. This historical Jesus can only be a non-Christ, a non-son. Thus, it is no longer the Jesus of the Gospels speaking to those people today who rely on direction, from this type of interpretation when reading the Bible, but the Jesus of the Enlightenment's philosophers in Explained Jesus. In his new book on Jesus of Nazareth, Benedict says this, just a little bit more. The reconstructions of this Jesus became more and more incompatible with one another. At one end of the spectrum, Jesus was the anti-Roman revolutionary working, though finally failing, to overthrow the ruling powers. So that's one image. Jesus is this revolutionary, nonviolent, trying to overcome oppression, but the guy blows it, he gets crucified, and that's kind of the end of the story. The other end of the spectrum, he was the meek moral teacher who approves everything and unaccountably comes to grief. If you read a number of these reconstructions, one after the other, you see at once that far from uncovering an icon that has become obscured over time, they are much more like photographs of their authors and the ideals that they hold. It's a great truth. The people who write these kinds of books project onto Jesus what they want him to be. This is why we must read the Gospels. If we do not know the Gospels, we'll end up making up our own Jesus. And if we do that, that won't be Jesus. So we've got to read the Word. All these attempts have produced a common result, the impression that we have very little certain knowledge of Jesus, and that only at a later stage did faith in his divinity shape the image we have of him. That again was the claim that we saw in the idiocy that was the Da Vinci Code that the Council of Nicaea in 325 defines Jesus as divine and they changed Christian belief. Guess again. Paul's letter to the Philippians written sometime in the 40s, chapter 2, pretty clearly ascribes to Jesus divinity. This is no late reconstruction or change. You know, the result of all this kind of nonsense out there is that we reduce Jesus again to being something like Captain Kangaroo or Mr. Rogers 
And I think I said last week, it's one of my favorite lines from a Christian writer, Philip Yancey, who's a great Christian writer, says, you know, who in the world would crucify Captain Kangaroo? Nobody would do that. But that's exactly what they did to Jesus. They didn't crucify him because he was trying to get people to be nice to each other or to love one another. They crucified him because he claimed to be God. That's why. Unfortunately, what happens today, like happened in this conversation that I had with people, is we are not thinking. We're so accustomed to thinking about religion as being a matter of opinion. It's not about opinion. It's about truth. Not my truth, the truth. Therefore, I'm not arrogant when I say it is the truth because I didn't come up with it. This isn't me saying, I have found the best way to get to God. It's God saying, this is the way to come to me. It's not a claim about our superiority, our greater intelligence, our greater holiness. It's a claim about God coming to us. Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do men say that the Son of Man is? So he's just sitting down with them and going, okay, so what's the talk on the street? What do people say about me? He's trying to solicit the gossip out there, huh? And they say, well, some people think you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And he said to them, and the question that he says tonight to us is, but what about you? Who is it that you say that I am? This is the single most important question in life. Depending upon how you and I answer this question, we set a course for our life. If we answer the way Peter answered, you are the Christ the Son of the living God, that answer changes everything because that must mean it involves me. It has consequences for me. Jesus is not just the Lord. He is my Lord. He is our Lord. He sets not just the bar for me to imitate. He shows me the way. He is the truth. He is the life. This is not an academic exercise that we're engaged in here tonight. To answer this question is not an intellectual response or not only an intellectual response by which we think, well, yeah, you know, in the same way that I think two and two is four, I think Jesus is the Christ. One of those is nice little mathematical understanding of truth. The other one necessarily changes things in my life. We need to take a short break right now, but stay tuned to Divine Mercy Radio, whether you're listening via radio, smartphone app, Amazon Echo, or at dbmercy.com. Please know, we'll be right back with more about Jesus with Father John Ricardo. We're back on Double-Edged Sword, cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. Jesus. Who is he? With Father John Ricardo. So, so let's look at the person of Jesus. Who is he? Of course, you got some people out there who try to deny that he existed. You're just going to lose that battle. As a priest, you always get... You get a phone call, you know, my son, he's a junior in high school, he's having a real profound crisis of faith, he thinks he's an atheist, can he come in and talk to you? Sure, bring him in, I would love to talk to him. You know, I just, I just don't think Jesus existed. Really, on what basis? I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? Just don't think he's real. Well, what have you read? I haven't really read anything. Oh, never heard of Tacitus? Mm-mm. Tacitus was a Roman historian, writing in the first century. He was not a Christian, he hated Christians, actually. He talks about Jesus. 
Ever heard of Pliny the Younger? No. Pliny was a Roman too. He didn't like Christians. He actually was trying to get instructions as to how to kill them. Oh. How about Josephus? Read Josephus? Jewish historian? Mm -mm. You might want to do some reading. I mean, you just can't escape the historical claim. The man is real. He's a historical person. He lived in the time of Pontius Pilate, who was a real person. He suffered, died. There's no refuting that. We don't have to look at the Gospels for any of that. We can look at Roman and Jewish sources and get it. The question has to do with who is he other than the fact of his existence. So just so that we're clear as to who he thinks he is, if you've got your Bible again, flip open to Matthew 10. Let's look at some of the gentle, meek, and mild things that Jesus says. Matthew 10, starting in verse 32. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. What's the point? Your eternal salvation has something to do with whether or not you will confess me as Lord. Oh, it's a bit of an ego, huh? Keep going to Matthew 25 passage that we hopefully know so well, the judgment of the nations, when the Son of Man comes at the end of the world and he separates the sheep from the goats, one on his right and the other on his left. And he says to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was lonely and you visited me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you comforted me. I was in prison and you visited me. And they say to him, Excuse me? When did we see you sick or in prison or hungry or naked? And he says, so often as you did this for the least of my brethren, you did it for me. He's not claiming to be a mere man there. He's claiming to be connected somehow with all the rest of humanity. Mark chapter 2. We'll just look at a few passages. And we'll read the whole passage. It's chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. This is the story when... Friends who have a a man who's paralyzed, they try to bring him to Jesus to heal him. They can't get there because the crowd's in there, so they climb up on the roof. It's a great story, huh? Talk about drama. Open up this hole on the roof, drop a guy down in front of Jesus. Jesus looks at him and says, I forgive you. At which point, the men who are up on the roof have to be going, Yoo-hoo! He can't walk. That's why we brought him here. Maybe you didn't notice, but that's a mat. It's a stretcher. He can't move. We brought him here because we'd like you to make him move. It's a great passage for intercession. Sometimes we bring people to the Lord, but we really don't know what it is we're supposed to be asking for. These guys thought they knew what this man was really afflicted by. They were wrong. So he says, get up and walk. And the Pharisees, you know, get into this whole thing. And It's a Sabbath day and they can't make somebody walk on the Sabbath. You can cure somebody if they're dying on the Sabbath. You can't cure somebody if they're just sick and they could be cured on another day. It's the Jewish understanding back then. Figure that one out. So Jesus says, I forgive you. And the scribes who are there hear this and they go, you've got to be kidding. Who do you think you are? You forgave him what? He doesn't even know you. What could you possibly forgive him for? And yet Jesus is claiming that somehow every sin is committed against him somehow. That's how he can forgive it. And so they all go, nobody can forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. So he proves to them that he has the power to forgive sins by saying to the man, okay, what's easier? I forgive you or get up and walk? What's as easier to say? It's easier to say, I forgive you because you can't empirically verify that. But if I say to you, get up and walk and you actually get up and walk, then that's my way of saying, I also have the power to forgive you. That's why he makes the man walk, to make it clear. Point. Jesus is claiming to forgive sins which only God can do. He's not claiming to be a man. 
John 6, here's some fun passages. Imagine uh, at the UN yesterday, President Bush gets up to address the General Assembly, and he starts off with something like this. I'm the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. I'm the living bread, which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. At which point, the General Assembly at the United Nations walks out, thinking, I don't think so. (laughs) Either that just confirms what you thought about the man, or something's gone wrong, whatever. But sane people don't say things like this. I am the bread of life. John 8, verse 52. Try saying this to your friend tonight. If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. To which the people who are hearing him go, you are out of your tree. And then they go on to talk about Abraham and he retorts at the end of this passage in verse 58. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am which is the divine name. He claims for himself the divine name, at which point the Jewish people who are there pick up rocks and want to stone him. They want to stone him because they understand very clearly what he has just claimed for himself. He has just taken the name which the Jewish people still to this day do not pronounce and ascribed it to himself, which is blasphemy, the punishment for which, according to Leviticus, is to be stoned to death. Flip to John 11. Verses 21 to 26, this is the great story of Jesus and the raising of Lazarus. And Before he raises Lazarus, he shows up at Lazarus' grave and Martha's there to greet him and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection, and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Intelligent men don't say things like that. Great teachers don't say things like that. One last passage. John chapter 14. Jesus is in discussion with the apostles. This is the night of his betrayal. And Philip, one of the apostles, says, Lord, show us the Father and we shall be satisfied. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and yet you do not know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. What's the claim? In looking at me, you are seeing God in the flesh. I'm not a good man. I'm not a nice guy. I'm not a moral teacher. I'm not a philosopher. I'm not a prophet. I'm claiming to be God. Peter Kreeft, he has a tremendous number of books which are just quite accessible, I think, and people can understand how he writes pretty easily. He writes in uh, this book called Fundamentals of the Faith. What would we think of a person who went around making these claims today? Certainly not that he was a good man or a sage. There are only two possibilities. He either speaks the truth or he doesn't. If he speaks the truth, he is God, and the case is closed. We must believe him and worship him. If he does not speak the truth, then he is not God, but a mere man. But a mere man who wants you to worship him as God is not a good man. Hear that again. A mere man who wants you to worship him as God cannot be a good man. He's a very bad man indeed, either morally or intellectually. 
If he knows that he is not God, then he is morally bad, a liar trying deliberately to deceive you into blasphemy. If he does not know that he is not God, if he sincerely thinks he is God, then he is intellectually bad. In fact, he is insane. In which case you get the three responses that Josh McDowell and then C.S. Lewis talked about with the question of Jesus. He's either the Lord, that's the first L, he's a liar, or he's a lunatic. There are, according to the scriptures and according to the historical data that we have, simply no other options. He cannot be a prophet, whether it's the second to the last or the last. He's claiming to be God. Prophets don't claim to be God, let alone wise men or sages. Morons do, if they're not God, but not intelligent people, and certainly not good teachers. Teachers have the responsibility to teach truth. That's what teaching is supposed to be about. If they're not teaching truth, they're not good teachers, however much they may make us feel good. And the contemporaries of Jesus understood perfectly what he was claiming to be. That's why they did that. The Jewish leaders handed Jesus over to be crucified because they understood very well that this man claimed for himself to be God, which they considered to be the ultimate blasphemy. And so they put him to death. So the only choices that we have are the two choices that we have as the title of the talk. He's either God or he's a bad man. The problem, which became pretty evident in my discussion with these folks today, is how do you know which one he is? What is the key question for Christianity? Think of it this way, more generically. What is the key question for any religious claim? Is it true? That's the question. Is it true? Everything stands and falls on that. And the credibility of Jesus rests on the resurrection. The claim about the truth of Christianity is that God who was dead, who was buried in a tomb, is alive. Contrary to Thomas Jefferson, if you got your Bibles again, flip open again to 1 Corinthians 15. St. Paul's writings, are they after the Gospels or are they written before them? Before. Decades before, in fact. The earliest accounts we have in the New Testament are not the Gospels, they're Paul's writings. Paul says, zip, zero, zilch, nada, niente, about Jesus' miracles. We got one line in there that he quotes from Jesus' teaching, that it is more blessed to give than to receive. Other than that, zip. Paul's message that he preaches is really simple. God became man, offered up his life on the cross, suffered, died, was buried, rose from the dead, has ascended into heaven. That is the gospel. And because he's done that, there is work for us to do to tell others about that. 1 Corinthians 15 is Paul's kind of long discussion on the resurrection. But he's writing to people who are rejecting or are confused about or who are doubting the resurrection of Jesus, who think maybe that's not really the essence of our faith. Maybe something else is. Paul says this, starting in verse 12. If Christ is preached as raised from the dead, which is exactly what the gospel is, that's the gospel. Christ, who was dead, is alive. Not in spirit. He's alive. If Christ is preached as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified of God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. 
For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sin. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And here's the key line. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all men most to be pitied. Jefferson thought Paul was the great editor of Jesus' words and concocter of the stories and the accretions on top of the gospel stories. In fact, Paul is the closest to the Lord in the sense of time, in terms of writing. And his message is really simple. Jesus, who was dead, has been raised. And because he's been raised, death has been destroyed. And because death has been destroyed and sin has been atoned for, you and I have hope. That's the message of the gospel. But... How in the world can that really be true? Show of hands, how many people here have lost a loved one? I'm 12 years ordained now. I've probably buried hundreds of people. Never seen one of them sit up, ever. If there's one thing that you and I know from our experience, it's that dead people don't come back to life. We know that. So one of the things I try to always do with kids, especially when they get into junior high and high school, I try to encourage them to ask questions. Because at that age in their life, you know, like this junior who comes to see me who thinks he's an atheist, even though he's never read anything, if they just blindly swallow the idea that God is so in love with us that he became one of us, offered up his life on the cross, rose from the dead, and ascended into heaven, and they just swallow that without ever thinking something's wrong. Because that's not our experience It flies in the face of everything else we know. In fact, the loss of loved ones is oftentimes the thing which moves us away from God. just sat down with a woman the other day who left church for years because she was angry with God because her husband died. And we all know people like that. Maybe it's even us at times. We don't understand why certain things happen. Death is very final in our experience in life. When I was uh, studying in the seminary, I was in Rome. Some of you have heard this story, I know, but I had a classmate. He wasn't a friend. I didn't know him, but he was a classmate who was from Bosnia. This was back in 92. And at Christmas time, we went to uh, Paris, I think, with a friend of mine. He went home. While he was home, in the middle of the fighting that was going on in Bosnia, he got abducted by radical Muslims who presented him with an option. And the option was, renounce your faith or die like Jesus. And they nailed him to the floor. Can you imagine me showing up at his mom and dad's house maybe two months later and said, uh, had an ice cream and a cup of coffee with your son last night? How do you think they'd respond to that? I think I'd get a slap. How dare you mock our grief? Because dead people don't come back to life. I think sometimes the culture in which we live, certainly this enlightened age, looks back on the ancients and thinks that they were idiots. No wonder something like this spread. I mean, they... They had all sorts of superstitious thoughts, you know. And then you actually go to Europe, or you go to the Middle East. You go, say, to Egypt, and you look at the pyramids, which are 5,000 years old. And you sit there, I have a brother-in-law who used to live in Egypt, he's an engineer, and he looks at him and says, I don't have a clue how they built these, with the labor that they had, and the lack of machinery that they had. Or you go to Rome, and you walk through the ruins of ancient Rome, which are still standing. The Colosseum is still standing. It's been bombed, it's had two world wars, it's endured countless sacks, earthquakes, strikes from the trucks that drive all around it that try to make it fall down, all the invaders that came into Rome to try to raise it, it's still there. And the lions don't even play in the Silverdome anymore. (laughs) Silverdome was built, you know, in the 70s. The ancients weren't idiots. 
they weren't bumbling, unintellectual people. If you've ever been to Rome again, you've gone down to Pompeii or Herculaneum. Oftentimes people go to Pompeii. If you get a chance to go back to Rome, don't go to Pompeii, go to Herculaneum. Herculaneum is kind of like the lake place where the wealthy lived. Indoor plumbing, hot water, cold water, tepid water, frescoes that are still on the walls. These people were brilliant. They were no less inclined or no more inclined than you and me to just swallow the idea that God became a man, died, was buried, and rose again. The Christian claim is really twofold. First, on Easter Sunday morning, the tomb was empty. Second, a number of people, including people who were not followers of Jesus, in fact, enemies of Jesus, had meetings with him or encounters with him after he had risen from the dead. Two things. Sunday morning, there's nobody, and real people met a risen Jesus, and some of these people were not in his company. Most significant was Paul. Paul was not a disciple of Jesus. Paul hated Christians. He was about the business of killing Christians. He thought Jesus was a blasphemer. So for all those people who think how convenient that the resurrection appearances are just to the disciples, well, lo and behold, the most significant is not to a disciple. The most significant is to an enemy. It's to Paul. N.T. Wright, who's a great Anglican scholar. He's the Bishop of Durham. And Wright does a wonderful job just kind of walking through all the different evidence and whatnot that we have of the resurrection. And the simple reality, as he makes a point to state, is that the only sufficient and necessary cause for the rise and the growth of Christianity, historically speaking, is because those two things are true. The tomb was empty, and people met him, including people who were not in his company. There is no other plausible historical answer to how Christianity could grow. The witness of the apostles is simply unthinkable if this is not true. It's what they preached. This is a homily given by St. John Chrysostom, who was the bishop of Constantinople. It's worth hearing, I think, in its entirety. He's talking about the passage we just read, trying to speak to people again about how it could be Christianity has grown in the way that it has. From the time of the emperor Nero in the year 64 until the conversion of Constantine in the year 312, it is officially illicit for a Christian to exist in the Roman Empire. So for 250 years, longer than the history of the country that you and I live in, it is illegal and forbidden to be a Christian in the Roman Empire. It wasn't always enforced, to be sure. There's four great periods of persecutions in the Roman Empire. But it's a law, nonetheless. It is illegal for them to exist. So Christism writes, It was clear through unlearned men that the cross was persuasive. In fact, it persuaded the whole world. Their discourse was not of unimportant matters, but of God and a true religion of the gospel way of life and future judgment. Yet it turned plain, uneducated men into philosophers. How the foolishness of God is wiser than men, his weakness stronger than men. In what way is it stronger? It made its way throughout the world and overcame all men. Countless men sought to eradicate the very name of the crucified, but that name flourished and grew even mightier. Its enemies lost out and perished. The living who waged war on a dead man proved helpless. Therefore, when a Greek tells me I am dead, he only shows that he's foolish indeed, for I, whom he thinks a fool, turn out to be wiser than those reputed wise. 
So too, in calling me weak, he but shows that he is weaker still for the good deeds which tax collectors and fishermen were able to accomplish by God's grace the philosophers, the rulers, the countless multitudes cannot even imagine. Paul had this in mind when he said the weakness of God is stronger than men. That the preaching of these men was indeed divine is brought home to us in the same way. For how otherwise could twelve uneducated men who lived on lakes and rivers and wastelands get the idea for such an immense enterprise? How could men who perhaps had never been in a city or a public square think of setting out to do battle with the whole world? That they were fearful, timid men, the evangelist makes clear. He did not reject the fact or try to hide their weaknesses. Indeed, he turned these into a proof of the truth. What did he say of them? That when Christ was arrested, the others fled, despite all the miracles they had seen, while he who was leader of the others denied him. In other words, if you're going to write the Gospels and you're going to try to make yourself look good, they didn't do a very good job. The apostles in the Gospels come off like idiots. It's not a really effective way to attract people to your club. How then account for the fact that these men, who in Christ's lifetime did not stand up to the attacks of the Jews, set forth to do battle with the whole world once Christ was dead, if, as you claim, Christ did not rise and speak to them and rouse their courage? Did they perhaps say to themselves, hmm, what is this? He could not save himself, but he'll protect us. He did not help himself when he was alive, but now that he is dead, he will extend a helping hand to us. In his lifetime, he brought no nation under his banner, but by uttering his name, we will win over the whole world. Would it not be wholly irrational even to think such thoughts, much less to act on them? It is evident then that if they had not seen him risen and had proof of his power, they would not have risked so much. Furthermore, the apostles, this is important, I think, because sometimes people claim, well, the apostles, you know, they had this kind of wish fulfillment, and that's what Jesus' resurrection is all about. It's a fulfillment of their wish. But in fact, the apostles aren't expecting a Messiah who's going to suffer, die, and rise. The message of the apostles is something like, we were really wrong about Jesus. That's what they're preaching. We were wrong. He totally did something that we weren't expecting. We thought he was of a completely different nature. We thought he was going to overthrow the Romans. We thought he was going to bring peace and prosperity into the world in which we live. We did not expect that he was going to go to a cross to bring about not peace between us and our oppressors, but peace with us and the truest oppressor, which is sin, by the price of his blood, which has washed away our sins. We were dead wrong because we weren't looking for this. No one is expecting a Messiah who's going to rise from the dead. No one. One last approach. History cannot be scientifically verified. Whenever we're studying history, we're dependent upon something. What are we dependent on? Yeah, people who were there, right? You weren't there. I wasn't there. I'm dependent upon people who can tell me that. If you and I are dependent upon witnesses, what is the key question we want to know about the witnesses? Are they trustworthy? Oftentimes, this is even, I think, right out of the Da Vinci Code again, you know, there's that expression, it it's, comes from revisionist understandings of history, that history is written by the winners. The winners of what? What exactly did they win? Every single successor of Peter, every single pope, every one, until the beginning of the fourth century, died a martyr's death. Can you imagine every single president assassinated? So... The successors of Peter, they didn't win a whole lot. 
nor did the Christians at large. Peter Kreeft, again, in his little book, he puts this in a nice little paragraph. This is what they won. Their friends and family scorned them. Their social standing, possessions, and political privileges were stolen from them. They were persecuted, imprisoned, whipped, tortured, exiled, crucified, eaten by lions, and cut to pieces by gladiators. So some silly Jews invented the whole elaborate, incredible lie of Christianity for absolutely no reason. And millions of Gentiles believed it, devoted their lives to it, and died for it. For no reason. Just a hoax. If history was written by the winners, it was written with their blood. They did win. They won a martyr's crown. The witnesses of the resurrection, not the people who were there, because no one actually saw it happen, but the witnesses who said, I saw Jesus alive, were who? The apostles. What happened to the apostles? They were brutally killed. How brutally were they killed? Peter's crucified upside down. John's boiled in oil. James is beheaded. Another James is thrown off the top of the temple. And then there's Bartholomew. Bartholomew is skinned alive. So use this as a gauge for credibility for a historical event. Here's a man who's claiming, not that I met somebody who told me Jesus was alive, but that I, and I know this sounds absurd because I know what you know, that dead people do not come back to life. But this one did. That's why he's unique. That's why he is the eternal son of God. And as crazy as it sounds, we saw him, we touched him, we spoke with him, he spoke with us, we ate with him, and he is alive. And Bartholomew's captors say, you are seriously deranged and the rubbish that you are spreading is going to lead to division amongst the people. So we're going to help bring you back to reality. And so they strip Bartholomew and they begin to peel his skin off until he's dead. If I'm Bartholomew and I have the least suspicion, the moment the knife hits my skin and it begins to come off, I'm going to talk. But no one talked. And not only did no one talk, they all died praying for those who were killing them. Unlike the people who flew planes in the World Trade Center on 9-11 cursing the people they were killing, the Christian martyrs died praying for the very people who killed them. And their words were the same words of Jesus from the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. There is no more credible evidence that any person in history could give us than what the apostles and all the martyrs have given to us as to the reality or the reasons that you and I have to believe the resurrection of Jesus. If you and I don't believe this, then I would challenge how you believe anything else in history that predates a camera. Because no testimony could be backed up with so much credibility. Faith is not blind. It is very reasonable to believe in the face of all the historical evidence that we have about the growth of Christianity, it is unreasonable not to accept the resurrection of Jesus. You have to do incredible mental gymnastics to escape this. If this happened, then it matters. This is not just another piece of historical information thrown our way. If that's true, that God is so passionately in love with you and me, that he has sent his only son into the world, that he has suffered, died, taken upon himself our sins so that we can be restored to friendship with God, so that what was closed off to us, eternal life, has been opened up to us again. 
if he has ascended into heaven and is right now preparing a place for us that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and hasn't even dawned on us, if this is true, it matters. It changes everything. And the world at large thinks that we're just offering them one more piece of information. We're not offering them one more piece of information. We're trying to offer them what has been offered to us, namely a relationship with the living God who wants friendship with us. Why does he want friendship with us? He made the seraphim and all the angels. And yet out of all of creation, nothing is as significant to him as you and I are. Because we alone are made in his image and his likeness. He became a man to save men, to save the human person. If this is true, this is the reason why you and I can live our lives with hope. Because it means that God cares. It means he's not off on the sidelines watching all this happen. He cares. He is with us. He knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to feel abandoned. He's been tempted in everything like we are. And he's shown us that the end is not death. Death doesn't get the last word. He gets the last word. And the last word is life. Abundant, everlasting, ever-increasing life. That's why this matters. Thank you for listening to Divine Mercy Radio. Whether you're listening via radio, smartphone app, Amazon Echo, or at dvmercy.com, we appreciate you tuning in to this week's Double-Edged Sword, Cutting to the Heart of a Deceptive Culture. If you would like to comment on today's show, please go to dvmercy.com and click on the Double-Edged Sword icon. The comment button is in the middle of the page. Please, also, if you can help us purchase equipment for the new station we're putting up in Salina, please go to dvmercy.com and click on Donate. You're listening to Divine Mercy Radio 88.1 KVDM Hayes, 88.1 KRTT Great Bend, and very soon KJDM 101.7 in Salina. If today you hear his voice, harden not your hearts.